Welcome to the Voice Equals Power podcast, where we explore the big question, how does an artist find their voice? I'm your host, Nicholas Krolak. If you like what you hear today, you can keep up to date with my travels through Sonic Space at my website, nicholaskrolak.com, or on Instagram at nicholas underscore krolak. My guest today is Willard Jenkins. He is an independent arts consultant, artistic director slash curator, producer, writer, and editor, operating under his Open Sky Jazz banner. During his extremely productive career, Mr. Jenkins has served as artistic director for the Tri-C Jazz Fest, Beantown Jazz Festival, Lost Jazz Shrines, and Jazz in Progress. He collaborated on African Rhythms, Randy Weston's autobiography. He has taught jazz history at Cleveland State University and the online course Imagine Africa for Kent State. He is currently the artistic director for the DC Jazz Festival, one of the premier jazz festivals in the world, as well as the author of his blog, Independent Ear, which is full of incredibly insightful content, which I highly recommend. Mr. Willard Jenkins, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. And um, I'd like to start off, um, you do a lot of things in jazz, and we're going to get to hopefully all of them. Uh, It's quite a long list, but I'd like to start off with um, how you got started in a life of jazz. Like, What was your first experience with jazz? Well, my first experience with jazz was uh, pretty much like everyone else's as a as a listener. Yeah. And in my case, that meant listening to my father's record collection and listening to the radio. And uh, that was pretty much how it started. Yeah. So did you did you was your first inclination like I want to play this music, or how did, how did that evolve into uh, what you've been doing for the, for the past, um, so um, what you've been doing in your career with with writing and um, artistic directing and and such. No, I never, uh, I never particularly 
at least not after a failed attempt to play the trumpet in the junior high school. I never really, I never, I never really um, aspired to be a musician. Mm-hmm. But my entry point was as a writer mm-hmm. in college. Yes. And that's how things started for me, writing for one of the student newspapers. Uh, did you do like uh, criticism or kind of like journal journalistic? Uh, I did record. I did. I started out with record reviews. Okay. Yeah, I started out with the record reviews, and uh, it just evolved from there. And um, you know, writing provided a, an entry point mm-hmm. to, to to all the other different things that I've had the privilege of doing. Uh, it all started with that. So how do you? Um, I, I want to talk about your your blog in a little bit more in detail later because I found it very interesting and also a, a really great resource for musicians. But um, before we get into that, um, how do you approach writing about jazz? That is always like writing about music is it's tough because it's. Well, I approach, it, I approach it from the perspective of an enthusiast. Mm-hmm. I don't approach it from the perspective of necessarily the science of music. Yeah. I approach it from the perspective of an enthusiast and my reactions to what I'm hearing as an enthusiast. Mm-hmm. So that's, all, that's always been my approach. Uh I'm not uh I'm not trained in this what I refer to as the science of music. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been around it long enough. Um uh, and know enough artists and have a basic ability to string together two sentences. <laughs> so I've I've um, approached it from that perspective. Yeah, um, I I appreciate that exp- that perspective a, a lot um, in terms of reaching larger audiences through writing. I feel a lot of the technical writing. Uh, you know, t- like speaking about like technical aspects of music um, goes over a lot of people's heads, and also for people who, who do understand it, it, it gets kind of boring. So well, I, I, I I would agree with that. I don't necessarily think, for example, for a musician reading something, some commentary about his or her recording or about a performance and whatnot, I don't think they're so much interested in confirmation of what they did technically and what Mm -hmm. chords and whatever they strung together. I don't think they're so much interested in that. And I certainly don't think that that the average enthusiast is that interested in that side of things. Basically, the average Enthusiast wants to know, was it good or bad, or and why or why not? Mm-hmm. And is this a recording that I should pay attention to, and why or why not, and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So let's let's get into into the blog first, because mm-hmm. I guess I didn't one I didn't know that you you wrote a blog uh, until I started doing some research about you, and. Um, I really enjoyed it. There's a, a ton of posts. Um, I think going back to I think about 2007, I want to say, mm-hmm. and 
the blog is called uh, The Independent Ear, mm -hmm. and it is on your website, which is OpenSkyJazz. OpenSkyJazz.com, yes. Yes. And uh, a couple of the posts that really stuck out to me um, that are things that one of them is something I talk about a lot on this podcast, which is uh, fashion mm -hmm. and presentation of, of, of the artist's musical self through their visual self. Yes. And um, I had uh, Tim Moorfield on the podcast not too long ago, and that's how we started because, you know, his, his fashion sense is amazing and it feeds into his artistic sense and uh the the post uh is called dress to thrill uh i believe there's two of them dress to thrill one and dress to thrill two. Oh yeah that came up that came up pretty recently yeah uh, you know all along i've been been uh writing different perspectives on what I feel is part of the artist's responsibility mm -hmm. as far as uh, developing the audience for this music. I think the artist has a certain responsibility to be mindful of the whole aspect of stagecraft. Mm -hmm. And that's not only in terms of your appearance on stage, because, you know, there is a school of thought that suggests that uh, how you look on stage equates to how serious you are about the music and about putting forth your musical message. Uh, but it, in actuality, I've actually written more on the subject of on-stage comportment hmm. than I have on on that whole aspect of dress. Yeah, mm -hmm. I have written about dress, but when I speak of on-stage comportment, I'm speaking of the fact that I think artists miss an opportunity if mm -hmm. they don't communicate with their audiences. I've yes. talked to, I've, I've met enough audience members, talked to enough audience members to know that that communication from the artist is very important to their experience mm -hmm. and very important to the audience's uh, understanding of what it is that they're hearing because, you know, let's start with the fact that the whole notion of improvisation and of how jazz is made is foreign to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people don't understand what it means to improvise. You know, they think improvising to some people means just, you know, just standing up and playing a bunch of notes. But what they have to understand is that there's a certain blueprint mm -hmm. at work within which this improvisation factors in. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of younger artists who feel, they feel most compelled to perform well. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, is the, main, is, is the main consideration. But surrounding that, there are other elements that they have to be mindful of, one of which, as I said, is communicating with the audience giving the audience some sense of who they are and mm -hmm. what they're playing, why they've made the choices they've made. I've seen where that really makes a difference with audiences. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, conversely, I've seen experiences where artists come out 
and they're very serious about what they do and they play uh, very complicated or at least they think it's complicated, complicated mm-hmm. original compositions that no one has ever heard and they don't talk about the composition mm-hmm. or what motivated them to write that music or you know what was on their mind. They just play tune after tune after tune, lengthy, somewhat complicated sometimes, mm-hmm. without saying anything. And the audience is kind of left puzzled because mm-hmm. they, have, they, they haven't really been brought into the circle, so to speak. Yes. So that yes. that 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 whole that whole element of of stagecraft or comportment, as some people might uh, characterize it, has been a very important consideration for me. And that is not it's it's all it's from an enthusiast's perspective, but it's also from a presenter's perspective, mm-hmm. because uh, you know I've presented music and uh, invariably when I present something. I'm watchful and mindful of the audience mm-hmm. and the audience's reaction and and how the audience is interacting with the music and how they're getting into it and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, I've seen far too many situations where an audience is left more puzzled mm-hmm. than they are um, enthralled or entertained or uh participate in the in the uh, situation absolutely i've i've seen my share i've experienced uh my share of of that and uh as a musician that like i had to kind of figure that out over time mm-hmm. why why isn't the audience responding why like what am i doing wrong here you know mm-hmm. and it's very easy for for young artists to think oh my music is just not good enough you know, oh, you know, going, going, let's, 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 let's back up a bit. Going mm-hmm. into, going into the performance, it, it's, it's, it's very easy for artists to fall into a mindset that says, they came to hear a performance. I'm going to give them the best I have to offer, and my performance will itself. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't require any kind of. of explanation it doesn't require any kind of introductions or anything of that nature my my responsibility is simply to perform well well yes that's your first responsibility yes yes exactly you also have you also have other responsibilities along with that Mm -hmm. at least if you are of a mind to develop an audience for what it is that you do now if you don't care about having an audience you know that's another thing (laughs) yeah but but most artists want to have an audience because having an audience will help sustain their mm-hmm. artistry. Absolutely. When I talked to uh, Tim Warfield about about fashion, he he put it in in the light of it was part of the the compositional process in terms uh-huh. of you know great you wrote this song, but how are you going to give it a life? You well, you know he's a he. You know he he he's an excellent person to speak to about this yeah. issues because he does take care, take great care in how he looks mm-hmm. on the bandstand. And you know, and, and and the way you look on the bandstand, that is the immediate first impression. Yes, because before because before you even play a note, you still have to walk out on stage. Mm-hmm. 
You know what I mean? Yes, I do. <laughs> so, so there's there's that responsibility, and 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 I would certainly, I would certainly appreciate the perspectives of a Tim Warfield on that because I know Tim, and I know Tim uh, have seen Tim and know him well enough to know that that kind of thing is important to him, and he has really, he's really studied that aspect of his performance. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. I think that that's a very important uh, thing for younger musicians to to be thinking about and be, you know, think about their music, think about how they want to present their music. And uh, so thank you for that. Uh, I would like to move on to another post that jumped out at me mm-hmm. that I really want all of my listeners to check out. Um, and it is called the Curator's Roundtable. Okay. And he basically interviewed several artistic directors and compiled their answers about you know, what they're looking for, how they program things, how they program their events. And that was a great read for me because it helped demystify uh, the process to see what artistic directors and programmers are looking for, which is a thing that a lot of, especially younger artists, don't have any idea about. Well, you know, that post was in part, you know, basically I have an interest in what my colleagues in the field are looking for when they're putting together Mm -hmm. their festivals and events. Mm -hmm. That post was also in part a response to the kind of queries that I get mm-hmm. uh, for the DC Jazz Festival all the time, mm-hmm. uh, queries that come pretty much somewhat out of left field. Mm-hmm. For example, um, artists will make pitches, even though they've never performed in this market, mm-hmm. and so they have not—they have not performed in this market, so they haven't established any kind of identity. And it's kind of presumptuous to just assume that your first performance mm-hmm. opportunity in a given market is going to be on that given market's major annual festival. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of presumptuous and it suggests a lack of doing real research. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you do research and you see what a given festival or presenter uh, has a history of, of doing, maybe what you do isn't a good fit, mm-hmm. or maybe you're simply not ready. Mm-hmm. And so I felt it necessary to, to poll some of my peers in, in this uh, business of presenting jazz just to get a sense of what they're looking for and how they build their festivals and their events. Mm-hmm. And so that was the perspective I was looking for in that. Yeah, I enjoyed reading it. And like I said before, I would like everybody, all all my young musician, all my musician uh, friends and listeners to to check that out. And as you said, you're the artistic director for the DC Jazz Festival. Yeah. And this is a pretty good segue to to – to talk about that, could you talk a little bit about 
about the festival and where it has been and where it is going? Well, uh, DC Jazz Festival, we just celebrated our 15th anniversary festival last June, June 2019. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are an approximately, I say approximately because it can fluctuate from 10 to 12 days, but we're an approximately 10-day summer festival held during the month of June. And we're somewhat unique in that we are a citywide festival. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if, if you know Washington, D.C., you know Washington is broken out into four quadrants, northeast, northwest, southeast, and southwest. We have presentations in all four quadrants of the city. We have presentations in dozens of different neighborhoods throughout the city. And uh, what we have done is rather effectively incorporate others mm -hmm. like clubs and even presenters who present jazz during the year to come and be a part of our festival. And we we do that we we do that through a component that we call jazz in the hoods. Mm -hmm. As in jazz in the neighborhoods. So, so we're a citywide festival, and uh, we are, the culmination of our festival is the uh, final weekend of the festival, which is held in a uh, on the the riverfront in a new riverfront development called the Wharf, mm -hmm. and uh, we have three stages on that weekend, and it's free. And this past June, we had over 150,000 people during, wow. the course of, during the course of that weekend. So in addition to that big weekend, we also present at the Kennedy Center, mm -hmm. and we present embassy programs as well. And the embassy programs have really given us uh, – an interesting kind of niche yeah. uh, that's not really available to other festivals. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like it is to us being based in Washington, D.C. And so being based in Washington, an international city, we feel it incumbent to have an international aspect to the festival. Mm -hmm. And here's where... Some of the pitches that I get from artists get interesting because uh, as a result of this embassy series, I get pitches from artists from overseas all the time. Mm -hmm. And at least in their case, I'm able to inform them about our embassy series. And in many cases, they come from countries with which we've not yet had a relationship. And so, you know, I'm able to uh, refer them to their embassies because not only do we do embassy related programming during the festival, but we have embassy collaborations throughout the year. That's our year round programming. Mm -hmm. A core of our year round programming is embassy presentations. And so we've presented artists from around the world and introduced them to our audience as a result. And those year-round programs at the embassies themselves, either at the embassy or at the ambassador's residence, 
are very popular because it's kind of an exclusive kind of thing. You know, you're going to mm-hmm. an event for a performance, et cetera, et cetera. A little different than going to your average club or, or concert. <laughs> yeah. And it's an opportunity to present artists who otherwise might not have an opportunity to perform in this market. And it has evolved to the point where during the festival itself, on our, our final weekend at the wharf, we have what we refer to as our international language of jazz, where we present artists from different parts of the world. Like this past June, we had artists from Italy, from France, from Canada, from Denmark, mm-hmm. uh, from Colombia, from Bolivia, from Finland. So, you know, we, we've been able to develop a, a very strong series of relationships with the foreign embassy community here in Washington. Yeah. And that's and and that's been a, a a part of our a core part of our festival. We also foster a very strong jazz education program that is around as well. Mm-hmm. And so during the course of that final weekend at the wharf, we also present youth ensembles and student ensembles as well. Very cool, very cool. In my notes, I wanted to talk about the embassy series just because it's it's a, such a unique uh, avenue for jazz specifically in D.C., and so thank you for bringing that up. Um, well, you know, we, we're, we're, we're the D.C. Jazz Festival, so we want to do everything we can to reflect the fact that we're in the nation's capital, Yes. and, and the, the foreign embassy community is, is, is quite a strong part of this Absolutely. whole D.C. community, so we, we need to reflect that in our festival. Absolutely. Another aspect that is incorporated into the DC Jazz Festival that I found out just through research that I really want my listeners to check out is the Jazz Pre. Yeah. Um, the competition for 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 bands. I, I found that just particularly interesting because I'm personally really, really, really like dedicated bands. You know, throughout jazz history, you know, Coltrane's band, like Miles. First and second quintet, you know, today Branford's band. I really like dedicated bands and following that. Maybe it's because I come from uh, like the rock world and rock bands. I you know grew up listening to rock, and it was always about the band, and I I really enjoy that. And there's a lot of competitions for soloists. You know, the Monk competition. I just found it so unique, and I have a lot of friends in Philadelphia who you know, have dedicated bands, and I just want them to know about it and to apply. And uh, can you just uh, speak a little bit about that competition? Well, we decided uh, about four years ago, that not five years ago now, we're having our fourth competition coming up next June. Mm-hmm. Uh, we de- we decided that we wanted to have a competition, but that we wanted the competition to be focused on the band mm-hmm. because the band or ensemble, however you prefer to refer to it, the the band is the core of what this music is about. A big component of what this music we call jazz is about is the interaction between musicians on the bandstand, i.e. the band. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, you know, you look around and you, and you see a lot of individual competitions, particularly a lot of piano competitions. Yes. Uh, and then, there, of course, there are... You know, the Thelonious Monk competition, which is now the Herbie Hancock competition, <laughs> which is also focused on individuals 
and and has done a marvelous job down through the years of raising the profile of young artists who've come through those competitions. So, you know, when we look at the field, you know, we just decided it was kind of a no-brainer. Well, let's do a band competition because that's the essence of this music is the band. So that's what we decided to do an emerging bands competition that has a maximum age of 42 years old, mm-hmm. and that's been that's been an issue been an issue with some people, I guess. Mm-hmm. But and the whole aspect of being emerging, I guess, has been an issue to some because emerging for some is established for others, you know. Yes, yes. But we we do have various criteria for our competition, and in fact, we've just opened the application process for our 2020 uh, DC Jazz Pre. And uh, if your listeners want to find out more about that, they can go to uh, dcjazzfest.org and press the uh, DC Jazz Pre button and all the information and application form will come up. Absolutely. I encourage everybody to do that. Sounds like a great, great opportunity and the prizes are really fantastic as well. So please, everybody who is in a band, check that out. Take it out. So my question for you as an artistic director, basically everybody that I know that that does a job, the general statement, everybody that I know, there's something about that job that only people who do that job understand. You know what I mean? And I was just wondering, what is something about the job that just nobody that is outside of the job would even think about? Well, I don't know, you know, because there's a lot of different components to this work. You know, there's planning, there's development, there's execution, and there's interaction with staff, and there's interaction with agents and managers, and there's research that has to be done on artists and on ideas you want to put together and bring forward for a festival. I guess one of the things people might not uh, consider uh, they mm-hmm. understand. Yeah, they understand it, but they, they don't necessarily consider it. Uh, let's use this marketplace that we're in right here in, in Washington. We refer to this area as the DMV, and that's mm-hmm. DC, DC, Maryland, and Virginia. Mm-hmm. Well, here in the DMV, we have a lot of competition. Uh, there's a lot of competition for artists and for the kinds of things that you want to do on a festival, uh, invariably you'll find out that artists you're interested in are performing at different venues in the market at a time that's not necessarily convenient for you. Say, for example, someone is performing in this market somewhere in the spring. You know, it's not, it's not that feasible for you to bring the Mac in June for a festival. So the competition is pretty strong here, and that ranges from clubs on up to major presenters like the Kennedy Center and Washington Performing Arts. You know, there's a lot of competition in this market, and, uh, you know, a lot of us have to, uh, we have to be pretty quick about putting together what we're interested in before someone else scoops it up. (laughs) Yes. So, so I think I think I think that that aspect of competition may be one aspect that 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 people don't have a great understanding of. Yeah. You know, for example, there may be a situation where you want to present someone on a festival in June, 
and they're already booked in the market in February or March. Mm-hmm. But they are of a stature where they would have enough audience to make it feasible to bring them back in June, despite that March or February performance in the market. Well, one thing that people don't understand for sure is the fact that in our agreements with agents and managers, if, hypothetically speaking, let's say someone is being presented in the market in February and we want to present them in June, we have a strong desire to present them in June on the festival. Being a festival, we are we try to be way ahead of the curve in our PR and marketing. So, for example, we will be announcing our June festival in January. We'll start in in January, but if an artist is booked somewhere between announced time and June in the market, that means that we are embargoed from mentioning that artist's name until after that that other engagement in the marketplace. So, so that that makes it a little sticky and a little tricky sometimes. But that happens. Yeah, yeah, I could I could see that being a stressor. It is. It is. <laughs> so, you have also taught jazz history. Yeah, I started teaching jazz history at Cleveland State University mm-hmm. in the uh, early 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I I taught a jazz history course online for Kent State University, my alma mater, for several years, but I haven't taught in several years now. Mm-hmm. And you also wrote a book called African Rhythms, which is a um, a biography of Randy Weston. It's it's one of those as told to autobiographies. Oh, okay. In okay. that in that I wrote it, but he told it to me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, it, you know, we we did extensive interviews for years, and uh, I wrote it, and it's the autobiography of Randy Weston, and it's certainly one of the joys of my life, and and one of the highlights of my life was working with Randy Weston. Uh, yeah. to realize this book. That's very interesting, and I'm going to definitely, I did not have time to read it before this interview, but that's definitely going to be on my list. Um, yeah, I'm, please do. I'm somewhat embarrassed to say that Randy Weston didn't come up on my radar till a couple of years ago uh, when I, I read a Monk biography. They mentioned Randy Weston a lot. i got to check this guy out. So, yeah, well, Robin Kelly, who wrote the Monk biography, Mm-hmm. He uh, was great friends with Randy as well. So he had great respect for Randy, and uh, Randy was one of Thelonious Monk's mentees. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess my question is, in teaching and writing, what is your approach or ethos to, to jazz history? Well, my approach to jazz history is to tell a broader story than the simple up the Mississippi from New Orleans story. Mm-hmm. Because it's more it's more complex than that, and in my work with Randy Weston, I learned a lot about the African essence of the music, and so I actually taught a course at Kent State called Jazz Imagines Africa, mm. that was that was about jazz musicians' various imaginings, so to speak, of Africa, mm-hmm. and uh, that of course gets into the roots of the music, a uh, part of the root of the music. And so, you know, 
I pretty much come from that perspective in terms of teaching. Hmm. That's a very interesting way of, of framing jazz history. This is something I think about a lot. I have, I've taught a couple of jazz history things for, for jazz camps that I teach at. And mm -hmm. every jazz history class I've taken does the, what I call the Ken Burns method, where they start in kind of pre-jazz and take a really long time there. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of run out of time in the now. You know what I mean? Well, I think it's important to uh, to try and give a survey of as much of the history as possible and to try not to leave out various perspectives and various eras. I mean, you know, Ken Burns, he left a lot out. Yeah. They did a marvelous job with that series, but he left a lot out. Yeah. Um, and in the case of what he did, you know, there are certain time constraints. But still, I think even within those time constraints, you have to present as broad a picture as you can. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And going back to my personal experience teaching at camps, these are like younger younger kids and like middle school, high school, and I have a big time constraint on it. I only have them for like a half hour mm -hmm. a, a day for like five days. Mm -hmm. So I really had to like put a constraint on it and focus in real hard to get their interest and then go somewhere with their interest. Right. Um, so what are some ways to gain interest, especially with kids where their interest isn't already in jazz? Well, you know, it's it, that's a complicated question. Mm -hmm. All of my teaching has been at the university level. And I know that when I taught jazz survey and jazz history courses, I always had one very valuable resource, and that was one of the uh, officials mm -hmm. of the music program at Cleveland State University was a working jazz musician and composer. And what he would do at the beginning, not the first class, but at the beginning of every course, he would come in and use one of those Jamie Abersole discs mm. and do an hour on what it means to improvise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the various aspects that go into improvisation. And that particular presentation gave me a good springboard mm -hmm. because it gave the students a basic understanding of what it means to improvise and also uh, the various methods of improvisation and the various lessons that the artists bring to improvisation. Mm -hmm. You know, like he would demonstrate, we use one piece from a Jamie Abersall play along, mm -hmm. and he would demonstrate various different approaches to improvising on that piece. Yeah. And various right and wrong ways to approach that piece. And it gave the students a real good understanding. So I think basically if you can give students a balanced sense of what it means to improvise mm -hmm. in, in the most basic terms, I think it will give the students a real good perspective on what it means to do that mm -hmm. and what it means to play jazz and what's happening when these musicians are playing because for many people, you know, they're kind of baffled by the whole process. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. That's given me a lot of things to think about. I like that for the, for the next time I teach jazz history. Great. Yeah. So um, I'm going to 
wrap this up in, in a few minutes. My last real question for you is where can people find you online or find out more about DC Jazz Festival or your writings or anything else you're up to? Well, they can find me at www.openskyjazz.com. And the DC Jazz Fest is www.dcjazzfest.org. Great. And we are June 12th, June 12th. to 21st. Very cool. Well, yes. thank you very much, Mr. Willie Jenkins. You. I very much appreciate your time and your and everything you've done for jazz and continue to do. Thank you very well, much. thank you. Thanks for listening to the Voice Equals Power podcast. For me, this series is a labor of love. My goal is to help document the making of jazz history in this moment. If you have any suggestions about who you would like to hear on this show, drop me a line. Thanks for tuning in. I hope to hear from you soon.